This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. Uh, looking forward to a great show this week for number 570. We've got Jack Springston out of uh, the New York City area. We're going to talk a little bit about mold and indoor environmental quality, a little current events, talk a little bit about some standards and guidelines that are being updated, and uh, get everybody up to date. Before we do, let's thank our marquee sponsor. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors, Particles Plus, Healthy Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And, of course, our association sponsors, Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for today Friday, January 17, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. I would be remiss if I didn't congratulate Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental, Dayton, Ohio, for answering last week's trivia question. The answer was $7,500. Uh, which is the amount of the average water damage claim in North America that involves carpet and drywall. Hmm. Here's today's trivia question. Name the New York City governmental agency that first issued guidelines on mold remediation in the early 1990s. Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Okay, so Jack Springston's with us today. He's got over 30 years of experience in industrial hygiene and occupational health. He's a certified industrial hygienist, a certified safety professional. He's been a CIH since 93 and is one of less than 50 active CIHs who also holds the subspecialty certificate in indoor environmental quality. He's current chair of the AIHA's Continuing Education Committee And he's a distinguished fellow at AIHA. He's currently the Industrial Hygiene Services Manager for the ATC Group Services in New York City, Albany, and Long Island. Welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you, Joe. I should say the answer. You know the answer. I'll bet you do. (laughs) You may have been part of that. Uh, Welcome back, actually, Jack. You joined us in two. Way back, uh, after 9-11, we were talking, you and Dr. Dietrich Weil, and then we had you on once uh, at the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council show, And uh, but I'm glad we got you back, and it's, it's just you this time. Um, let's, let's start out a little bit on, on some background. Uh, you, you've, you've moved over to ATC now. I remember back in my days at uh, 
PSI ATC was our big competitor. They were a pretty large, um, you know, 100 cities or so, uh, indoor environmental. Well, they did environmental and, uh, if I'm not mistaken, construction-type inspection work. Is that true? Uh, yes, industrial hygiene work as well. Yeah. Uh, so there's about 100 uh, offices nationwide, including an in, uh, office in uh, Alaska and uh, in Hawaii, and about, I, think, I believe, about 3,500 uh, employees. And you, you're on Long Island, but there's also an office in Manhattan and one up in Albany? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's our New York group, is, uh, as you said. I, I, I call it Wrong Island. It's, it's too crowded for me. But. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong Island. I, it's a tough place to get around in. But, uh, you know, I'll bet you run into a lot of interesting projects up there. What, you know... ATC is a big group. I, I pulled down some, you know, I was looking at the website and all the different types of things they do. They've got indoor air quality and, you know, you do radon and asbestos and lead and microbial investigation, water intrusion, chemical hygiene programs, infection control, you know, lead consulting. There's a whole list of things. What, what I guess out of all those things, what, what's the bulk of the work in your group up there in New York City? Um, we do a lot of insurance uh, surveys for water losses, fire losses, uh, stuff like that. Um, do some work with um, uh, hospitals, doing exposure monitoring. Um, I do some uh, expert witness work um, myself on, on uh, asbestos, legionella, mold, uh, the usual suspects. What, what kind of uh, exposure monitoring are you doing in hospitals? Um, it's for like waste anesthetic gases. Uh, you got nitrous oxide, uh, sebofluorane, uh, desfluorane. Um, we're doing some monitoring on um, endo endoscopy uh, units uh, for exposure. Um, done some EMF exposure monitoring. Huh. What I'm curious, that one really gets my attention, Jack. What what brought that up? If you can talk about it. Uh, in this case, it was high high power tension lines that were running by the building. Oh, okay. Uh, so they were, so they were concerned about that. So in that case, we're looking at 60 hertz uh, predominantly for the EMFs. Uh, we just recently had one where the concern was actually from Wi-Fi routers. Um, so in a case like that, you're looking, uh, you, you can't take this regular EMF meter uh, and go do readings because it's not going to pick it up because um, your Wi-Fi routers are running at like 2.4 or 5 uh, gigahertz. So if, you, if you're reading at, at 60 hertz, you're not going to pick up anything. So huh. you have to make sure that you had the proper equipment for, for what you're looking for. It seems like that's – is that a kind of new thing? You've been getting some calls on EMFs? Um, actually, uh, I've been involved with EMFs going back probably 20 years or so. Okay. Interesting. Uh, the, 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 the concern with the Wi-Fi routers is, is more recent, obviously. Do you, what about ICRA-type stuff, infection control risk assessment? I see that's on the list of – things you guys offer, um, do, you, do you see much demand for that? 
I have not been personally involved in that. So Okay. Okay. Now, the other thing I noticed here recently, New York City was in the in the uh, in the news because of the New York City Housing Authority and a lot of complaints about mold and I guess probably asbestos and lead. That's always been a a topic of concern, but I think recently there's been a lot about mold and I noticed a recent article where they've put aside a bunch of money to do, uh, it looks like HVAC cleaning. And, and I'm curious, what, what can you tell listeners about the situation there? Uh, it's, it's funny that you bring that up. I mean, um, I don't think a lot of people realize how huge NYCHA is, a uh, New York city housing authority. Uh, you're looking at, at um, around 360, developments over 173,000 apartments wow about 2600 buildings so um NYCHA, between NYCHA and and what they call section 8 housing um has 564,000 residences residents people living in in these houses and half a million people over a half a million people right um, and if, if NYCHA land was, was um, a city, uh, realize it would be the 36, 32nd largest city in the U.S. ahead of Atlanta and Miami. Bigger so, than Pittsburgh for sure, yeah. Yeah, so you're talking an extraordinary um, large number of apartments and people that, that you're dealing with. Um, so they, they've historically had issues with lead, lead-based paint and everything. Uh, the mold issues have have become more and more uh, pronounced uh, and more uh, public. Um, NYCHA was uh, actually through, um, I think it was a federal judge ordered them uh, to have to do uh, mold inspections in, in their units. And then most recently we saw was um, this issue with, with uh, duct cleaning. And um, they set aside, I believe it was like $50 million dollars. Right. How, how far do you think that's going to go with this many buildings? Well, you got a half a million people and fifty million dollars. Uh, not very far, Jack. No, no, and they're talking about having all of it done by twenty twenty two, and I really can't see that happening either. Interesting, interesting. So, the, will they have someone assess and then write a scope of work, or will the HVAC cleaning, duct cleaning companies do their own inspection and then do their own cleaning and confirm their own work. Has that been decided yet? Um, I have not heard anything about that. Okay. Because it, it, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the New York state mold licensing law, which has been in effect, I, I, I guess a couple of years now. I know, uh, you've been approved to do with the mold inspector and mold inspector refresher uh, training. And I'm wondering, will the New York City uh, Housing Authority be required to use, to use licensed people to do that work? Well, New York City actually has their own. Uh, so let's go back to New York State. So New York State... Okay. Um, regulation has has been in in effect, I think, for three years. Uh, It it might be two years. Um, But um, it's almost like 
law because you don't have anybody that's really um, uh, like New York State really isn't um, in law. Uh, unless somebody calls up and complains, um, you know, they're, they're not going to know. Um, I, I've seen instances where um, companies have gone on, done, done assessment, and then recommend um, it, it, that they do the remediation. That, that's one of, you know, one, one of the basic tenets in, in the law is that you can't do both. Um, huh. Still have companies out there that, that are, are doing both. Now, New York City... Um, because they can't ever be outdone by New York State. Uh, <laughs> um, and what, what they did on, on their regulation, and, and New York City DEP is the one that enforces it, um, they require um, notification to the city of any, any um, uh, remediation that's being done. And then within one week after the remediation has been cleared by, by a mold assessor that it's supposed to be filed with the city. Um, again, they're not enforcing the, the regulations, so uh, there's a whole lot of work going on out there that, that isn't being uh, filed with the city. Um, hmm. The other thing the city did was they closed certain loopholes um, that were created by the state uh, regulation, one of them um, being that uh, the New York State regulation allows uh, building owners to do their own remediation, their own assessment and remediation. New York City law says no, it, it can't be, you know, they can't do that. Um, but, so to circle back to the NYCHA, um, yes, all, all the uh, mold inspections are supposed to be done by licensed mold assessors. Does New York City have, and, and I want to jump, get Cliff here in here in just a minute, but um, does New York City have their own training requirement or do they fall back on the New York State training and licensing? Uh, they, they fall back to New York State. Okay. And Cliff, I know you wanted to jump in here and uh, do a follow-up. Yeah, I, I did have, have a couple of them, Jack. Um, a couple of questions. On this, um, uh, on these buildings, what's the range of the housing stock? How old are, how old are these buildings? <laughs> what do they range from? Um. Uh, I really can't answer that. Uh, my, my, my gut feeling is probably a majority of them are, are um, right around pre-war uh, and shortly thereafter. Okay. So well, a lot of your building materials in them are, are plaster, which is a good thing. It's right. Gibson board. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, most of the building is pretty old. As far as the um, cleaning of the air handling systems, would the majority of these buildings have air conditioning coils or is it just heat? Um, so uh, majority of the buildings, the only uh, supplier is going into the hallways. Uh, okay. so within the apartments, the, the only ventilation that you have is uh, exhaust from, for the bathrooms. Okay. And then if, if it's air conditioning, it would be window-mounted AC. Right. Okay. Then, I'm try, then I'm trying to figure out that, – that's what I would think. I, mean, I was just trying to figure out why they would be cleaning all this for mold if there's no moisture in the system, you know? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> I have no good answer. Okay. No, no problem. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. And I don't know – 
if it was specific to motor, they just felt like these systems had never been clean and they, and they needed to do so. I mean, do you know Jack or is that? Um, my guess is that a majority of this, these systems have never been clean. Uh, you probably have um, within the exhaust systems, there's probably so much buildup that, that you've got a real loss of, of um, pressure uh, and, and uh, velocity through these ducts. Uh, probably to the point where um, I think per code for bathroom exhaust, it's supposed to be 50 CFM cubic feet per minute. And, and you probably have exhausts that are, you know, if, if they're pulling a tenth of that, uh, they're lucky. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So I, I, I'm wondering, and I, it may be something you don't know, but I mean, you've got a half a million people, I forget how many units you said there were. Let's say there's uh, 150,000 units out there. That's 173,000. 173,000. Are there enough licensed inspectors and remediators to do all that work over a two- or three-year period? Um, For for the – so the the two-, two, three-year period is for the – for the duct cleaning. Okay. So, uh, in a case like that, you're not dealing with mold assessors, uh, and then you've got the duct cleaning companies. Um, for the mold inspections, um, we actually have a, have a contract um, with, with uh, NYCHA for doing mold inspections. Um, I, I suspect that there's, there's other companies as well. Um, we haven't begun work on that contract yet. So, uh, I don't know the extent as far as how many how many apartments uh, we're going we're gonna to have to be inspecting. Um, I believe for the most part it's probably going to be just visual, uh, and and uh, we'll have to see. Okay, I'm curious too. I mean, you, you run into um, a lot of obstacles in you know. I would imagine many of these are high rise buildings, and you're trying to do duct cleaning in a high-rise building, you run into a lot of obstacles uh, getting your equipment in place and so on and so forth. Uh, have you had much experience trying to do that? Um, I have not, but uh, another thing to, to consider too is um, some of these are not the most safest place. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, I was reading one uh, a story recently where, where it said even the police are, are afraid to enter in some, some of these facilities hmm. trying to go about and do, do your work within, within them as far as cleaning ducts and everything. Um, wow. I think it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, even for your people doing inspections, um, have you thought about that? Will they have to go in teams of two just to be on the safe side, or how do you handle that? Uh, we do a lot of lead inspections where, yes, we, we go in and as, as teams, uh, um, NYCHA representatives um, with our inspectors. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's going to be interesting, Jack. I'll tell you, it's, it's going to be really interesting. We'll follow up with you as time goes on and see, you know, how that project's coming along. Um, another interesting thing that I've been watching is apparently New York City has – they, they, I don't know whether it's a goal or a regulation, but they're trying to improve the energy efficiency of all the buildings in New York City. 
And, uh, you know, when, when you're going to do that type of a major overhaul of, of, of buildings, obviously there are things that can, you know, unintended consequences, shall we say. I wonder if you could fill listeners in a little bit on, on what you know about that program. <clears throat> So it's funny that you bring that up because I, uh, this morning on, um, I think it may have been CNN uh, while I was watching, um, they talked about the, it's a new New York City regulation. And I'm not, um, I'm not real familiar with, with how much uh, energy savings that, that they're, they're trying to stipulate. But um, the story talked about how uh, the Empire State Building recently um, through uh, – installation of new windows and, and various retrofits um, had cut their energy usage by 40%, um, which when you think about it, I mean, that, that's pretty substantial. Uh, but then they mentioned that um, under the new law, they would have to um, cut uh, their energy usage even beyond that. Uh, hmm. you know, so um, as you mentioned, right, um, all, all I can think about is um, this law of unintended consequences, uh, and and that we are likely to see um, that happen with it with regard to the impact on, on the indoor environmental quality. Um, and I say indoor environmental um, rather than indoor air because not only are we likely to see um, through the tightening up of these buildings, um, and um, you're, you're probably going to uh, ventilation. Right, because you're trying to save heat or cooling, uh, we may see cut cut down on ventilation or or cut down on on the um, amount of out, outdoor air uh, brought in. So we're going to see a, um, likely a buildup of um, airborne contaminants. But um, we are also likely to see um, something similar to what to what we've seen happen with the green building movement, where the age of water within the building gets to the point where your residual uh, disinfectant levels drop down to zero. Uh, and what happens when that, that occurs? Well, we see Legionella then begin to proliferate within these systems. So uh, it would not surprise me uh, if we see something very similar to that um, as a result of these regulations. And New York City has one of the few regulations i guess would be in the in the country on uh, cooling towers because of legionella is that something you do as well um yes so so the uh new york city cooling tower regulations came about um as I, i'm sure you re- recall um back in 2015 we had we had a large outbreak of legionnaires disease in the bronx south bronx where um i think it was 100, 136 cases in something like 21 deaths. Um, So um, as a knee-jerk reaction, uh, New York City um, uh, passed their regulations on on cooling towers, um, requiring uh, periodic inspections, um, testing, and documentation of of things such as uh, pH and and residual chlorine or disinfectant levels, um, whether it be chlorine or bromine or or whatever they're, they're using. Um, and then um, periodic testing of the cooling towers for, for um, both um, uh, aerotropic plate, plate counts, which is, uh, you know, just uh, total bacteria counts as well as um, Legionella. 
So uh, we then, just like uh, with the mold regulation, while New York State, not to be outdone by New York City, decided to make their own regulations. (laughs) So um, Florida actually, New Jersey had had, um, a bill for doing the same thing, but I think it died on the vine last year. Florida has one um, that's out there right now. Uh, oh. it, it hasn't been passed, but um, if, 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 if there's several flaws um, with the New York City and New York State laws, one of them is um, the, the water treatment company can do their own testing. Uh. So surprise, surprise, the, the results always come back none detect. Huh. Who would have figured? Yeah. Uh, now, Florida is saying that the testing has to be done by somebody independent. So that's good. It's a step in the right direction. Um, the other, and this is really the bigger flaw in the law, is that it only addresses cooling towers. Now, best guess is uh, cooling towers account for maybe 5% of all cases. So you're missing 95% of the problem. Wow. By, by not um, also regulating uh, potable water systems and, and uh, water features, water decoration features. Interesting. Interesting. Cliff, I think you had a follow-up or, or a comment? Yeah, I, I did, Jack. And um, my partner here, Harry Velgich, is his mom's uh, cancer patient. And um, she ended up you know, coming down with some symptoms. She lives in a two-story row house. And she went to the hospital and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with her for a couple of days. You know, they're poking and doing everything. They, they find out that she has Legionnaire's disease. Hmm. And uh, so they test the house and every uh, water outlet in the house tested positive. Hmm. And um, what was interesting is, is we were talking to Dr. Stout who is pretty famous and, you know, in terms of Legionnelle investigation, she actually provided a free service that actually did the testing for free, actually. Hmm. And one of the things that she said, and I wanted to, to mention this to you, is that what happens in, in cities, older cities like Pittsburgh and, and New York City, that have old water systems that periodically break, they have to dig up those water systems. And what happens is there's biofilms inside of all these pipes and what happens is typically these pipes are underground, so they're going to remain cool until you dig them up and you expose them. And in the summertime, the sun beats down on those pipes and activates uh, that biofilm and will act, you know, will actually activate a bloom of Legionella. So I just thought I'd bring it to your attention and just something to think about if you're doing a lot of that. But, you know, I always thought that it was in cooling towers and big buildings myself, I never would have thought that it was in, you know, in, in resonances. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, um, for your typical residents, um, and I've had some questions um, with regard to, um, you know, Legionella and why, why don't we see it in, in like single family homes that much? Um, and, and if you think about it, um, for single family homes, uh, your water system isn't really that complicated. So you've got the water coming into your hot water, and then you've, you've only got a few pipes that are going out you know, to your kitchen uh, and to your bathroom. Uh, you don't tend to have dead legs. Uh, 
Um, and all of these, uh, most of your outlets, you tend to flush periodically, you know, daily, you know, daily every other day. Um, the issue is uh, on, on bigger buildings, um, larger buildings, uh, the system gets a lot more complicated. You can have dead legs. You can have effective dead legs. Um, and, um, I, I had a case, uh, it was a condo building down in um, Ocean City, Maryland where during the winter months, um, 95% of the building was empty. It's, so, it's only seasonal. So mm-hmm. I was like, so during the winter, you had you know, several hundred effective dead legs. Um, all these, these apartments where nobody's running the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you mentioned, I mean, uh, the Legionnaire is coming from the city water, where it comes from. Uh, and it, it's, it's only once it gets into the, into the building for the most part, um, where conditions are, are right, where it can amplify and become a problem. Right. And I think a lot of people have good resistance, so they don't even know that they've been exposed. And I think in his mom's situation, it was because she had less resistance, you know, based on the chemo treatments and, and so on and so forth, that it actually, you know, was able to, to take hold. But I, I, I'll tell you, I, right when this happened, it, it was in the summer and I remember going and, and clean my car windows at a gas station. You know, they have that, uh, you know, they have that little tub there that holds the, uh, <laughs> the water with the little squeegee and everything. And I'm cleaning my window and I actually splashed myself in the mouth and, you know, it, it tasted horrible and it smelled horrible. And I was just thinking, you know, I, I'll bet you every one of those things has Legionella in it. You know, people don't even think about it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I recall a paper <clears throat> where they they did testing of the um, uh, so so out in like Arizona and, and areas like that, and they'll use regular tap water in the windshield wiper for, for fluid instead of, mm-hmm. instead of putting it. Um, right. And uh, they found Legionella in these reservoirs in the cars right, for the for the windshield. Well, Jack, we're, we're right up on halftime, so I think what we'll do is we're going to stop here. We're going to thank our sponsors, and when we come back, there's three or four new documents coming out that I know you've been involved with to one degree or another. I'd like to alert listeners to those documents. Actually, some are already out, and then uh, talk a little bit about your thoughts on each, and we'll, uh, we'll come back in about 60 seconds with Jack Springston for the second half of our interview. IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers, a feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at WolfSense.com. 
association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at iaqa.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I science.org. Okay, we're back. Second half of our interview, Jack Springston. Jack, I, I want to go back to that New York State mold licensing law, and I guess New York City has a law as well. Uh, any thoughts to, uh, you know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of complaints about it, frankly, that, um, you know, you're a three-day class and you're, you're now an expert, licensed expert on, on mold inspection, and uh, mold remediation. But um, I'm wondering, has there been any, any talk about changes or revisions or uh, updates to the regulation? None that I'm aware of. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and, for the mold assessor, it's actually a four-day class. Okay. And the, the state um, dictates what you're supposed to um, cover and for how much time. Uh, and in reality, um, for, for what we're supposed to cover, we could probably do it in three days, but they tell us we have to do it in four days. So um, we, we tend to end up repeating a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the students are like, yeah, you already talked about this. Well, yeah, I know, but we have to do it again. Sorry. Interesting. And do you give the, you have your own exam that you give to the students that's been approved by the state? Is that how it works? Yes. Okay. Interesting. And then how often do they have to get refresher training? Is that annual or biannual? Uh, it's every two years. Okay. What do you think? Does it help make, mold remediation and inspection any better in New York State? Uh, I think it, it all depends on who's, uh, who provides the training. Um, I know there are certain training providers out there where um, you probably learn minimal, uh, if anything, and you're probably learning a lot of incorrect things. Um, we, uh, when we do our training, um, you know, we, we, we try to impart uh, what, what, what wisdom we can. Um, we talk about use, using like infrared cameras and, and um, uh, you know, um, like I said, try, try to impart the wisdom that we have from years of, of doing the inspections. Um, so you, you focus a lot more on, uh, it sounds like the, the building science part of things and then the, uh, the physical inspection of, uh, you know, using a thermal imaging camera or moisture meters and so on. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, um, and I think that's one of, one of our strengths um, by far uh, over most of the other training providers is uh, my experience um, in building sciences and, and being able to, to interact for so many years uh, with people like Joe Steerberg and, and Pete Consigli and, and others. Um, so, uh, I'm curious with, uh, do you think it's 
Well, let me let me ask this: in the in the state regulation, do they require um, that you have like a certain, I guess, pattern that you follow? That you have to first do a visual inspection, then you have to do moisture monitoring of some type, beef, and then if you're going to take samples, you have to have a reason for taking your samples, and then a way of presenting that information in a report. Is that all included as a requirement under the law? Um, no, the law doesn't get into that, that level of detail. Okay. So it's just, here's what you have to learn. Uh, here's the topics that are in the training. Here's how often you have to take the training. Here's what fees you pay. Right. Okay. All right. Fees Jack, are big. Been, I'm sorry. I said fees are big. They got to get their money. Oh yeah, you gotta have money for it. I mean, it's and you mentioned there was very little um, uh, enforcement in in New York City. Is that also true statewide? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how do they even try and enforce it? Is there any uh, notification requirement where you have to notify before you do a remediation, or uh, when you're done with the remediation? Um, do reports maybe have to be sent in from time to time, or do they just kind of, you know, expect that anybody that's doing this will follow the rules? Um, for, for New York State, there are no requirements. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I, I even contacted the, the state one time uh, and sent them a report um, that a client had sent me from, from a consulting firm um, where they were they openly stated within the report that they could do the remediation for X number of dollars. And I sent it to the state and I, 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 um, I said, I thought that's what the law was supposed to prevent. <laughs> and I never heard back from them. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's move on to some more uh, national types of, of, uh, and actually international to some degree, uh, new, new guidance. I understand there's a new, version, uh, uh, an updated version of the AIHA Green Book, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold, um, just came out, what, a week ago, or maybe a little more than that? Um, yeah, it, it just came out uh, last week. It's, it's now for sale through AIHA. So it's the second edition. Um, it, uh, the, the first edition was published in, I want to say, 2009. Um, so it's a little over 10 years. Uh, and and the, the, the hope had been to get it published by uh, last year's conference, the IHA conference. Uh, and then we were hoping August and then October. And now, now it's out finally. <laughs> okay. And this was, I think, was it dedicated to Phil Moray or was that another document I'm thinking of? Uh, no, you, you're correct. It was dedicated to, to Phil. Um, and um, I, I believe you're going to have David Miller on the, on the program coming up, and he'll talk about it in much more detail. But um, about 80% of the book is um, either brand new material or, or substantially uh, changed from, from the first edition. So um, it's, it's, it's a major change. Uh, I didn't realize that. That's a big change. Yeah. And do you know where um, there's been more emphasis in certain areas or you haven't gotten that far into it? I, I haven't gotten that far. Okay. I'm just, uh, we're, we're looking forward. I'm, I'm trying to get 
uh, Dr. Miller lined up here in the next two, three weeks, hopefully we'll get him on. And uh, the only reason I didn't get him on sooner is that I need some time to read the doggone thing. And that takes a little while. Uh, it's a bit lengthy, actually. All right. So the next one is um, AIHA and their Legionella guideline. Is that being revised as well, or is that something that's done? Um, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a group of us. Um, David Krause is one of them. Uh, Brian Shelton, uh, myself, and a number of others. Um, so, so that guideline came out in 2015. Uh, it came out shortly before the ASHRAE uh, 188 uh, um, regulation or, or uh, standard came out. Right. Uh, so uh, we are actively working on um, updating uh, that guideline. Um, we're adding... Uh, chapters uh, on, on <laughs> specific to uh, Legionella and, and healthcare uh, facilities. Um, we have a chapter uh, looking um, and, and talking about all the different guidelines, um, other guidelines and, and regulations to go more in depth on that. Um, so uh, we're, the, a group of us are actually meeting um, next week down in Atlanta uh, to to work on this so that we can try to to get it finished uh, and and hopefully get it published by the end of this year. And we had uh, Lanchi Weeks on not long ago. John, can you pull that show up for people to show them where that one is? Um, she talked about I think it was the was it the National Academy of Science put out a big document on uh, Legionella and uh, you know a little kind of state of the uh, kind of current state of the art document on that. Yeah, yeah, that was a document that was years in the making, and, and um, yeah, we're still kind of digesting some of, of what came out in that document. Um, one thing that um, I think a number of us were, were um, I don't know if I, you know, questioning or perplexed, or um, but they they came up with with a number where um, they. <coughs> where they said um, a concentration of uh, essentially 50 um, CFU per ml is your cutoff uh, level, um, right? Above that level is where it warrants immediate, um, immediate action as far as remediation. Uh, and the, the thing that caused us, some of us, you know, to, to step back on that, on that number is um, it really depends on the mode of transmission. Um, if you're at 50 CFU and it's in a humidifier, um, your exposure is pretty tremendous versus if you have 50 CFU in a cooling tower where nobody's, you know, the exposure um, for the people, you could be talking hundreds of feet away. Um, so uh, if you look at the AIHA guideline, it, it's similar to what OSHA, um, what OSHA's numbers were uh, years ago, uh, where where we looked at the system, and we have a sliding scale. Uh, so for a potable water system where you may be exposed if you're taking a shower, um, our, our levels are much lower, uh, you know, levels of tolerance, I, I could say, versus those in a cooling tower where you're, you're likely not going to have people um, susceptible people that are right next to the cooling tower and being exposed. 
Interesting. Cliff, you have a follow-up? Yeah, I just remember uh, one of the things that Leah, she said that struck me about that uh, document was how far they claimed that Legionella could travel. I mean, it was like miles uh, in the air, and, um, you know, I was just struck by it. Yeah, there. Um, I recall a, a study of, of an outbreak, I think it was in Spain, um, where they were able to document that people that were like five kilometers away, never closer than like five kilometers from the source, uh, actually came down with disease. Um, so, so there's a number of, number of factors that, that come into play. One is, you know, you, um, the humidity in the air. Um, is it overcast? Uh, your wind speed and direction. Um, so if, if, if you have a high humidity, uh, your water droplets coming off of that, that uh, cooling tower are not going to evaporate as quickly. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Jack, let's, let's jump to the next one. This has always been an interesting topic to me, the AIHA post-remediation verification guideline. And I, that's for mold remediation projects, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what's going on with that? Um, so I think it was about two years ago, um, Ling Ling Hung, who's one of the editors on the Green Book, um, approached me about that document. Uh, so that, that, was, that was published, I think it was in 2005. So it's, it's an old document. Um, it's relatively short. I think it's around 20 pages or, or something mm -hmm. uh, in like three chapters. Um, but she approached me about it as, uh, asking, you know, should we be updating this? Should we just let it, you know, die or, or not? Um, at the time we were, uh, we were working on, we, I, I, I had a very big part on the Green Book, but um, the committee was working on, on the Green Book. Um, but my feeling was that, yes, we, we should look at that document and update it because there's a lot of stuff that's happened between 2005 and, and now with regard to post-remediation uh, verification. So um, we were, uh, I, I think there's about five of us there that are working on it. Uh, David Miller, Ling Ling Hung, myself, uh, Don Weeks, um, and a couple of others. I can't recall who. Um, but we, we are essentially waiting for the, the Green Book to get published before we're going to dive into um, updating that document. But because it's so short, I think we can do it in a, in a relatively quick period of time, hopefully. So what's the goal for getting that one up? Um uh, I, I would like to think by the end of the year. Okay. We did have Don Weeks on. John, if you could pull that last show with Don up. There was a document AIHA did on um, sampling for mold and, and some of the issues with sampling for mold. I assume you'll be including a lot of that material in the new PRV document. Yes. Yeah, this was the AIHA's frequently asked questions about spore trap air sampling for mold for direct examination. It was an interesting, really interesting show. If uh, listeners get a chance, you might want to go back and check out that show with Don Weeks. Uh, he did a real nice job for us there, and that document's pretty nice. Uh, I enjoyed seeing, you know, it written out exactly what, what some of the issues are and, and how to avoid some of these issues. So, uh uh, AIHA does some nice work on these kind of things. 
Jack, let's let's go to the next one. Um, seventh edition of Patty's Industrial Hygiene. I don't think a lot of the indoor air quality people that uh, we get a lot of indoor air quality consultants on and remediation contractors. I don't know how familiar they would be with Patty's Industrial Hygiene. So I understand that's being updated. Uh, there's going to be a seventh edition, and that you did a are working on a chapter. I'm not sure if it's done on indoor air quality and non-industrial environments. You got a couple co-authors there. Can you? Tell listeners a little bit about what that document is, uh, Patty's Industrial Hygiene, and then a little about your chapter. Yeah, so uh, Patty's Industrial Hygiene um, is kind of like the Bible for for industrial hygiene. Uh, It's it's either four or five volumes. Uh, If you buy the hard copy from from the publisher, you're looking around $1,200. I mean, it's it's pretty expensive. Um, But... um, uh, I want to say probably for the either the fourth edition of Patty's, maybe probably the fourth, um, they, they started a um, chapter on, on uh, indoor environmental quality and non-industrial environments. Um, and Phil Mori uh, actually wrote that chapter. Um, so when they, when they came around to doing uh, the updating, the, the latest update, um, uh, the editor actually reached out to me because, um, unfortunately, uh, as you know, Phil passed away a few years ago. Um, and uh, I was kind of honored that, that they reached out to me and said, uh, would, you, would you revise and update uh, this, um, this chapter on, on IEQ? Um, so and when, when I say chapter, um, it's about 120 pages long. So it's, uh, it's a rather substantial uh, document, um, but I, I asked uh, Joe Stebrook um, uh, if he would help me on, on uh, with regards to like the mechanical and, and, and HVAC systems portion of, of the chapter, um, and then Elliot Horner um, if he would help me on, on like the bacteria uh, and, and mold uh, portions of the chapter. <coughs> um, uh, that. I've been told is going to be published uh, some point this year. It's it's in pre-production. So. Is it possible to get just the IAQ part, or do you have to buy the whole four, the whole series of patties? You, you would have to purchase whatever volume um, it it is in. And okay. I, I think it's in volume three. There's like volume one, two, three, four A, four B. I, th- I think there's actually five volumes in it. Very interesting. That would be interesting to see. Cliff, any follow-ups before we go to the roundup? No, Joe, good. Let's go to the roundup, John. All right, we've got the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog joining us today. Pete and Jack go way back when Pete saw Jack was going to be on the show. He uh, sent me an email, said, great, great idea getting Jack on here, and uh, I'm definitely going to join in. So, Pete, let's turn it over to you. Any uh, any comments or questions? Oh, I just, you know, I just was listening. I think Jack is always uh, kind of a wealth of information, and um, – you know, he, he's, he's been involved for so long through AIHA and, you know, 
I think him along with Mike McGinnis were the really the real early pioneers in um, developing that indoor air quality uh, kind of uh, the, the subcommittee, you know, and really advocated uh, back in the 90s before indoor air quality to the degree it is today was really on the AHA radar screen, you know, because they came from pretty much the industrial ranks and before mold and a lot of these indoor air quality issues got to be what they are today and the industry had standards and, you know, as many guidelines. There was a lot of confusion back in those days, you know, it's good to hear Jack mention the name like Phil Morey, you know, he, you know, Cliff and myself met him in the nineties and had such a, you know, had such a great relationship with him up until his passing. Uh, I really appreciate the work that he did and a lot of the other pioneers like that. So, uh, you know, the industry's really grown. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between, uh, all these kind of disciplines that fall under this big indoor air quality umbrella, if you would. And of course, you know, me and Jack, our relationship initially started when I first met him in the nineties at, at Steebrick summer camp. And, you know, that's kind of reached industry iconic status all unto itself. And, and quite frankly, the whole building science umbrella is so closely related to indoor air quality. I mean, uh, you know, back in the early days with Cliff and me and, in, uh, in the REA days, you know, we really adopted building science training as being a prerequisite for a lot of our certification and, you know, all the education and training we did in the day. And it's pretty mainstream now. And a lot, there's a lot of confusion about building science, but people relating it to construction management. And, and they're really, they're really not related. Building science is an entirely different aspect. And anyone that's involved in poking around a building in any manner from building it to inspecting it to remediating it to you know to to whatever if they don't managing it yeah if they don't understand those dynamics they're not going to be able to do the job that well and it create a lot of confusion so um, you know kudos to guys like Jack and McGinnis and Steebrook you know and, and all these guys who uh, were willing to reach out to to other industries and other disciplines and network and collaborate and I think it's uh, it's kind of made it better for the person that really we should keep our mind on more than anyone and those are the people you know the general public the people who who are impacted by the work that we do so uh anyway well uh, said good, good job with the interview boys we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and uh certainly if we if we don't forget about them and we learn from their lessons and their mistakes then we'll we'll, we'll make fewer mistakes ourselves and this industry will continue to get better and better um Jack, I understand you were a sous chef at one time, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, they, uh, we're going back to the 1980s. Um, I was actually a head chef at a Italian seafood restaurant um, in Southampton on Long Island, uh, and it helped it helped me uh, get through pay for college. Um, but uh, yeah, people people would be. Tell me, uh, you were a sous chef, and I was like, no, I'm more like a pseudo chef. But uh, <laughs> hey, you know, the, the funny thing was is when I when I first met Jack, when we uh, you know we're doing the summer camp thing, and I insulted Steve Brook, and he gave me this this job. I needed to reach out to a bunch of help, so I said, hey, anybody want to help? And Jack raised his hand, and we didn't know each other, so uh, we, you know, we, Alan Gels jumped in. We went shopping, we got a bunch of stuff, and we started cooking in the kitchen. And, I, and then I noticed as, I, as I'm telling Jack to do stuff, he's whipping these things together with no instruction. 
So about a day or two later, I said to me, Jack, you're pretty good at this. It's like, what's the deal? And that's when he told me about being, the, you know, being the, the chef at the, at the Italian restaurant to work his way through college. And then I thought to myself, oh, how lucky am I? I got a ringer in the crowd, man. And anyway, it was, it was, it was great for many years. And then, then Jack uh, kind of dropped off for a little bit because, you know, a lot of people have family obligations and stuff in the summer. But he came back five years ago and he's been there all the time. And I know, you know, Paul LeGrange, you passed the baton to. Jack's been really good there, and a lot, a lot of those recipes, a lot of the stuff we've done have kind of uh, stood the test of time. A lot of people come to summer camp, and they, they kind of get to eat and enjoy a lot of that stuff and all the tasty stuff that uh, that Paul put into it one time a year, and they come to summer camp to get to eat it. So, uh, anyway, hey, uh, Joe, the one last thing I want to say. So, Sir Isaac Newton is the guy that made the quote that if we want to see – higher and further we would stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and that was actually Stiebert's inspiration to summer camp which a lot of the people have embraced and Cliff always likes to say and I'm not sure who made this comment I don't know whether it was Teddy Roosevelt or someone but Cliff always liked to say if we don't learn from the mistakes of history and learn those lessons we're bound to repeat the mistakes and that's an important lesson that we we should really never forget Absolutely. In, in the he who ignores histories is is doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, no, no question, Pete. And uh, real quick too, while I, while we're on the topic of uh, events, RIA's 2020 International Conference is uh, going to be April 13 through 17 in New Orleans. The IAQA Annual Meeting and Expo, February 19 through 21 in West Palm Beach, Florida. And one of our sponsors, AEML, is going to have Winter Break 2020 in uh, Deerfield Beach, Florida, February 21 and 22. I know, Pete, you'll be there helping out, and I look forward to seeing you there. Yeah. Hey, Joe, can I put one more plug in for Andy Ask and his event sure. in March? So many of you know Andy Ask. He's a past president of uh, IQA, the well-known and respected uh, HVAC guy. Guest uh, on the show. Right, in Florida. he's ha has had a, a kind of a local showdown here for many years that was targeted at the, the architects, the home builders, you know, uh, that kind of building science uh, thing. And a lot of the summer camp people had supported that. They now have uh, moved it to a full two-day event with a lot of networking activities. And it's actually going to be in Bonita Springs, which is my hometown. It's just like two miles from me. And I met with Andy and his organizer. I met, met, met them at uh, her at summer camp, but I met with them the, the past few days and I'm helping them support the event. It's basically um, the, the, the website and the link with all the information. It's a very active website. Cliff, if you want to put this in a blog, it's www.climatezone1.com. Dot com climatezone1.com all lowercase no breaks and Steebrook is the main uh, uh, main keynote this year but there are guys like Gary Nelson and uh, Allison Bales and a number of other people um, there's going to be a whole uh, IQA section on indoor air there it is on indoor air quality which is um, you know over and above the building science stuff uh, it's fabulous. Certainly the uh, people in Florida, it's easy to get to, but I think it's going to start to draw a national audience uh, as it gets marketed and it's going to be something really exciting. You can see they got some good vendor and sponsor support from, uh, the, uh, you know, the air conditioning industry. So, uh, I think that's something that will resonate with the IQA listener audience and, you know, all the people that, uh, do what we do. So, uh, I'll be, I'll be at that event. Too. 
And uh, anyway, so. Uh, All right, Pete. Well, thanks for joining us. Cliff, any final comments, questions for Jack? I'm good. Thanks. Jack, before we go, uh, anything we missed, anything you'd like to add? Uh, let listeners know anything that uh, is, is on your mind. <laughs> we don't have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, uh, thanks, so thanks for having me on. Uh, we appreciate it. I'm glad we got you on a solo, flying solo, uh, finally here. It's been a few years. I think we had you on first in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so you were one of the early folks with Dr. Dietrich. Wow, good old Dieter. It's been a long time. I have to touch base with Dieter. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Jack Springston. Also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. At the controls, John, you got to have faith. Uh, Pete Consigli, the restoration industry, industry's global watchdog. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.